The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. False Religions, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 69. The writer, Michael Hamburger, in his poems Weather in Season, 1963, declares at one point, surveying the seeming meaninglessness as well as the evils in the world, quote, amid such omens, how dare we live, unquote. In another poem, he says, quote, Hell mind abhors a circle, let there be laws, unquote. Countless other writers in varying ways give witness to the need for a governing religious faith to provide meaning to life. The critical problem is, what religion? Fallen man, left to himself, recognizes the need for order and meaning. He knows that a religion, a faith, for living is a necessity. Because of his fallen nature, however, Man creates religions in his own image, in terms of his revolt against God and his desire to redefine justice in terms of his own will. As a result, the world is full of false religions. Apart from the supernatural grace of God, man cannot know true religion. He will only reproduce and refine the false religion of the fall, his desire to be his own God knowing or determining good and evil, right and wrong, and establishing all law for himself. Genesis 3, 5. The problem is further complicated by the fact that as converted men, we often carry unconverted areas of thinking into our lives in Christ. 
the theme song of many seems to be, quote, partially converted, Lord, I am thine. Heal and make me partially thine, unquote. Too many want all that Christ can give together with all that they want. False religions are served by this fact. We cannot say, quote, Thy will be done, O Lord, except when I want mine, unquote. In many churches, too, it can be said, Every heart is converted, but very few pocketbooks are. Ask any pastor. In brief, people want religion and they want salvation on their terms. We can view religion as our life support system or as the way to glorify God and to serve and enjoy Him forever. Prominent among the false religions of history is politics. Now, civil government is a biblical concern and an area of ministry. Paul declares that all rulers are primarily and essentially, quote, ministers, unquote, or, quote, deacons, unquote, of God. Romans 13, 4. Civil government is a ministry of justice and an important area of Christian service. The problem arises when men see the state as the way to social salvation. The Messianic state then begins to claim jurisdiction over every area of life and thought as the legitimate lawmaker and savior thereof. The modern state everywhere seeks this totalitarian and humanistic goal and the result is an accelerating tyranny. In church and state cases, I am increasingly hearing judges insist that no religious freedom is at stake, merely a question of compliance or non-compliance with an act of the state, a regulation or a law. The premise of the state as justice is also increasingly prominent. The state has at times been just, but history gives more evidences of statist injustice. Liberals and radicals see the answer to current iniquities as more power to the state, and this solution is powerfully furthered by most of the media. The status solution is seen as morally correct, so that all who challenge the growth of status power are somehow insensitive and morally wrong. In the minds of many, a link is being forged between true morality and the increasing powers of the state. Is the alternative the solution? Was Jefferson right in declaring that the best government is the least government? Given the growing and oppressive powers of the state, it is tempting to think so. Without all the oppressive regulating and taxing agencies, how much easier our lives would be? Or would they? I once lived for some years in an area of very minimal state policing powers and the results were fearful. The more sinful man is, the more dangerous he is, with statism or without statism. Statism is a false religion which sees the state as God walking on earth. But to see a limited state as the answer is to forget that sin comes essentially from man, not primarily from the state. The old proverb is true. You can't make a good omelet with bad eggs. Whether you have a big omelet or a small omelet, a power state or a very limited state, bad eggs are bad eggs, and bad men are bad men. It is false religion to believe that a rearrangement of the state apparatus will give us better men. This is definitely not to say that it is irrelevant 
what kind of civil government we should have. It would be morally wrong, too, for us to say that civil government is not an area of Christian concern and calling. Rather, just as our place is under God and His law, so too is the place of civil government. Politics is not the means to salvation, but an area where the godly can exercise dominion under God. Another false religion of our time is economics. There are all too many who believe in economic solutions to the world's problems. This is not to deny that many of our problems are in the sphere of economics. However, no more than the fact that a man has troubles with his job means that the job is at fault. Do problems in the economic sphere necessarily have an economic cause? All too many intellectuals of the modern era have held and believed that socialism or communism is the solution to man's economic problems. The fact that every socialist state is a disaster does not trouble these people. In their view, if man would only try their brand of socialism, all would be well. In our time, economics is an area of particularly fanatical beliefs and believers. There is here also an alternative, the free market. Very clearly, history does give us a remarkable account of the social advances brought in by the free market. It is one of history's more remarkable stories. Given the results, why have men turned against the free market? Is it possible, perished thought, that man can be illogical? One is tempted to say the better our mind, the greater our capacities to be illogical. Can any equal intellectuals in bad logic? Ability magnifies all our errors. But men have again and again destroyed the free market and all its beneficent products. This should not surprise us. A free market requires free men, and the lovers of slavery demolish every threat of freedom. Economics cannot be free if men do not cherish and value freedom. For me, an unforgettable recollection from the early 1960s is the lecture by an economist to a university audience on freedom. This scholar's book on liberty is still in print. He was shocked when the first question raised by a student was this, quote, What's so important about freedom? Unquote. The student regarded freedom as of minimal value, and almost all the students agreed. Let us assume for the sake of argument that most men are not hypocrites when they profess to want freedom. Freedom, like religion, is more than a matter of verbal profession. It is a characteristic of our lives. Freedom does not stand alone. It goes hand in hand with other things such as responsibility, the courage to face risk, and more. The riskless life is a slave life, and the welfare state is a slave state. A slave people will create a slave state, and no free market will be other than destroyed by them. Thus, economics, like politics, can become a false religion if we believe that economic arrangements can create the good society. Here, as in every other sphere, there is a right and wrong economically, but the success of good economics depends on good men. Christians, as free men in Christ, have a calling in economics, but it is an area for dominion, not a means to salvation. 
A good society begins with men and a good relationship to Jesus Christ, who then, in terms of the Lord, exercise dominion in every sphere. To neglect economics is deadly dangerous. To expect from it what only God can supply is a sin. Moreover, we can add that the church is no more the exclusive sphere of religion than are politics and economics. The primary locale of religion is in the life of man. Our life and our faith must be inseparable and united. Our faith must be more than what we believe. It must also be what we live. Neither politics nor economics have given us nor can give us world peace. Bad eggs never make good omelets, and at the heart of our world's problems is the fallen heart of man. Another false religion is modern education. Here, too, we encounter amazing fanaticism. Many hold that the solution to the world's problems is education. Are there sexual problems among youth? Education has the answer, we are told, and the result is sex education. Really now, the subject of sex deserves better than what status schools are doing with it. This is no laughing matter, say the experts, so they are turning it into a crying matter. Is crime increasing? We need to spend more money on education, and then we can solve the problem. Education has for many become the great way of salvation for man and society. Going back to basic education is surely good, but not of itself. Phonics will again teach children to read, but is a barbarian who reads any the less a barbarian? Knowledge is clearly good, but has knowledge made our professors any better than the rest of the population? Do professors have a lower percentage of moral and mental problems than do formers? We cannot neglect education and the works of a liberal. Jonathan Kozol have given us a telling report and analysis on how bad our schools really are. But education per se is not a way of salvation. It is a marvelous tool for faith and living when governed by a sound premise, but it can be, and commonly is, a false religion. Certainly for Horace Mann and his associates, it was a religion and a messianic one. Man expected public schools to create a better man and a better world. He was confident with all the confidence of those early New England Unitarians that his kind of school would eliminate crime and in time save the world. We live in the shambles of the world created by the Horace Manns of the past two centuries, and it is not a very pleasant prospect. Clearly, Education has often been and still is a false religion. There are so many kinds of false religions, more than we can take the space to discuss, but we should mention art. Many are convinced that art will civilize and elevate man, and in many cities, the arts have become the new religion for many prominent women. How eagerly they work, quote, to make the world a better place to live in, unquote. With their sponsorship of the arts, I once heard a woman speak of the ghetto classes in painting and dancing she and others were sponsoring. She was sure it would create better children and bring culture to the ghetto. Well, some children were no doubt entertained and perhaps an occasional child found a calling, but cultural activities become false religions when we seek to transform society through them.
False religions all expect more of man than man can ever give. They are men at work, and their works manifest their limitations and their sin. The meaning of true religion comes out clearly in the last question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Quote, what is the meaning of the word Amen? Unquote. Amen means, so shall it truly and surely be, for my prayer is much more certainly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. Unquote. How intensely we sometimes desire and pray for certain things. Yet we are told that God's hearing our prayers and His concern for us far, far exceeds any desires on our part. Jesus Christ is God's assurance of that fact. In true religion, more power and wisdom are always at work in us and around us than we can ever fathom or imagine. December 1985 Living in the Past Chalcedon Position Paper Number 70 Living in the past is a favorite and chosen pastime of many people everywhere. Individuals and classes, nations and races, regions and localities, all are addicted to their version of the golden age in the past. This is not all. Being surrounded in many cases with the achievements and glories of the past, people assume that these things are their own accomplishments. Men without faith have lived near the cathedrals of the Middle Ages and other monuments of the past and acted as though this past greatness somehow accrued to them. In the United States, the monuments of a Puritan culture are treated by descendants and present inhabitants as their present merit, even while they despise the Puritan faith. Throughout the Western world, we have all too many pygmies living among the ruins and relics of the past as though past greatness means their greatness too. Europe and America are not alone in this. All over the world, some segments of various cultures look back to the past a past they never made nor can reduplicate, and act as though the past were their accomplishment. At the same time, such people are an impediment to the development of a better today and tomorrow. Rome in its dying days was sure that so great a past ensured an enduring future, but Rome was dead and never knew it. Quote, the old order, unquote, in many cultures is a handicap to the very values it professes to believe in. As one American of colonial origins and long-standing roots once sadly remarked to me, quote, Our old families act upset over what is happening here, but they themselves are the worst element, because they have power and yet they use power to conspire against our future. Every ugly power group is loaded with our kind of people, unquote. But this is not all. Again and again, those who claim to be the heirs of past greatness invent a mythical past to suit their fancies. A sad example of this is Ireland. The greatness of the early Irish church is an exciting fact, but Irish nationalism in the late 1800s passed over this in favor of an invented past. The folklore romantics who began their work in Germany had a profound effect on some Irish romantics. An Irish past was invented, filled with little people, leprechauns, witches, hobgoblins, the evil eye, and more. Every little scrap of peasant belief was converted into a national treasure. 
In due time, more and more people of Irish descent became convinced that such things as, quote, second sight, unquote, were, quote, in their blood, unquote. Men like George Russell and William Butler Yeats created a new image of the Irish, and many since have been trying to live in terms of that image. The Irish were by no means alone in this. What makes the Irish change so notable is that it occurred in a country so devoted to its faith. All the same, Ireland was converted from a Catholic culture towards a nationalistic one, which stressed the mystical qualities of Celtic blood. At the same time, of course, the national character of many European countries was molded into new characteristics by the folklorist and nationalist impulses. This movement has not been lacking in the United States, a nation of immigrants. Many of the immigrants changed their names on arriving on American shores out of anger and resentment at what their native land had become. Their descendants now romanticize the country of their origin and have made a spiritual immigration to the country their ancestors renounced. At a safe distance from the poverty and oppression of the past, these heirs can fly in comfort to the places of their remote origin and talk ghibli of their heritage. However, the more men live in the past, the less relevant they are to the future. In fact, we need to see changes as opportunities sent to us by the grace of God. To cite but two examples, the American South and the American West have changed dramatically and radically since World War II. However much we may have liked the past, we need to recognize that it is gone and that the present comes from the hand of God and is a challenge to new growth and greatness. If we are not in Christ, we are dead men, and all our todays and tomorrows will only emphasize the fact that we are dead and irrelevant. Some years ago, when I began the studies which led to the writing of The Messianic Character of American Education, 1963, I was greatly interested in the role of New England men in the development of the United States. In the early years, New England's Puritan faith had its impact in other colonies, in England itself, and in the formation of the United States. By the early 1800s, the New England influence had shifted from Christ to politics in terms of a new hope of salvation by political and social action. In 1830, 36 members of Congress, one-eighth of that body, were born in Connecticut, and that state by population was only one-forty-third part of the United States. Of these 36 congressmen, 31 came from western states to which they had migrated. New England men were moving westward to assume leadership in the states in politics and then in education. Much of the Western radicalism was the New England radicalism. In California, New Englanders like John Sweat, state superintendent of schools, 1863 to 1868, one of many such men to head west, left their names on many streets and institutions. They also brought Unitarianism to California, as to other places. Sweat's life's motto came from Horace Mann, another Unitarian. Quote, Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Unquote. This was now the New England God, not Christ, but humanity. Sweat saw private property as the property of the state, 
and the children in California as, quote, the children of the state, unquote. The sons of the Puritans were Yankees and statists. Nothing stands still, however. William Hale Thompson Sr., a prominent descendant of a New England family, was on the staff of Admiral David G. Farragut. While on leave in 1865, he married Medora Gale, a member of a pioneer Chicago family whose father was one of the 38 original incorporators of the town of Chicago, and whose grandfather, Theophilus Smith, was a justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. Two notable families were thus united. Their second son, William Hale Thompson, Jr., was born on May 14, 1867. He was to become Chicago's most notorious mayor. Earlier, New Englanders had left Christ for the gospel of salvation by the state or for salvation by education. Now another step was taken, the quest for power as such. Quote, Big Bill, unquote, Thompson, born into prominence in culture, vulgarized himself progressively to become, quote, a man of the people, unquote. He was Chicago's mayor in the corrupt Al Capone era. His morality was expediency. Thus, in campaigning for Lynn Small for governor, he attacked Small's able opponent because he was a Jew. When Thompson's Jewish friends protested, quote, Big Bill, unquote, was bewildered and told them, quote, You know, I've been a friend to Jews. Look at the record of my appointments. I'm saying what I've got to say to make Small win. That's the only thing that's important here. Lynn Small has got to win. Thompson ran repeatedly on a, quote, reform, unquote, platform. He had the churches on his side during his early years. For Thompson, politics was an invigorating game, and the meaning of his life for him was the enjoyment thereof. He introduced religious and racial bigotry into some of his campaigns, not because he personally had any such feelings, but in order to exploit existing suspicions and hostilities. It is likely that as far as Thompson was capable of having a sincere belief, he was appreciative of the American past. Certainly he was a professional patriot and flag waver. He took America's power and success as a natural fact of life and, like Lake Michigan, something to be used and exploited. The history of Big Bill Thompson is revelatory of the history of New England and in miniature of the United States and of other countries as well. The age of faith, which established its greatness, gave way to non-Christian faith, statism, political action as salvation. New Englanders moved across the United States to mold the frontier area while working at the same time to destroy the Old South. Those humanistic reformers gave way in time to the exploiters political bosses, and men of expediency in one area after another. Boston, once the center of Puritanism, became after some generations a city better known for political corruption. All over the world, people like the New Englanders, Englishmen, Germans, Hollanders, Frenchmen, Spaniards, Italians, Austrians, and others sit among the disappearing relics of a great past like pygmies. They identify themselves in all their pettiness, triviality, and unbelief with past greatness, 
as though honor and greatness are inherited with land and buildings. I have walked across the grounds of famous colleges and universities and had professors speak proudly to me of past glories as though they were a present fact. When a casual acquaintance with the school made clear its intellectual and moral bankruptcy. Living in the past is very comforting. Its problems are gone and only its monuments remain. In every country, men live proudly and nostalgically in terms of their past. In the United States, New Englanders, Easterners, Southerners, and even some Westerners who have very little past can tell you how wonderful things were before, quote, they, unquote, came in and destroyed them. It is a superficially comforting way to live. But its promise is death. To arrest the past in any country or place is to turn it into a cemetery, or at best, into a museum. This seems to be the goal of much of the Western world. An expression of a few years ago aptly stated this frame of mind. Quote, Stop the world. I want to get off. Unquote. This is a will to suicide. One cannot live under God without living in terms of the present and future, albeit with the respect for the past. Some years ago, Nathan R. Wood, in The Secret of the Universe, 1936 and 1955, spoke of the movement of time from the future to the past. Tomorrow becomes today. Today becomes yesterday. The future becomes the present. The present becomes yesterday. The future becomes present. The present becomes the past. The future is the source. It is the reservoir of time which will someday be present and then past. The past issues, it proceeds from the future through the present. Unquote. This concept has been formulated by a few writers in terms of scientific theories. For us, it must be a theological fact. Given the biblical doctrine of God and his plan of predestination, the future goal of the triune God determines the present and the past. The crucifixion, second advent, and the new creation determine all history back to Adam. And behind Adam, today, one of creation. To live in Christ is thus to live in terms of the present and the future. The graveyards of history are the places for those living in the past. We have a future, and it comes from the Lord. January 1986 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. The love he has by his pain the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. And his love he deserves we should
Tell the 